Everything was confusing, didn't make any sense. Could you raise your hand? <laughs> Have you ever been a place in your life where it seemed like God basically just put you in a dark place and again, it was like he was bringing some kind of a condemnation on you, maybe because of something you had done in your past life, some sin that you may have uh, performed, or maybe that God was just having a field day with you like he had done with Job in the Old Testament, that behind this curtain, uh, God had basically said to the devil, I want you to test this brother of mine, or my son, and uh, see how much he can endure. Anybody had that experience? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've had uh, several such experiences in my life, and if I would go through those, I'd be spending probably the next two or three hours just doing that, and we wouldn't get to the sermon. So I'm just going to give a real brief summary, and then I'm going to get into the message. Okay, the first time I was, uh, went through an experience was when I was in Vietnam. I was trying to get a compassionate reassignment, and not to go through all the details, I had gone to Michigan, cost a lot of money to go there. It was refused. I had to go back for a couple more months, and it's like... They kept losing the paperwork. It was just a real mess. And I said, God, what are you doing? And so the last two months, I was really going through a hard time. My mother sent me a passage of scripture. Could you guess what she sent me? Romans 8, 28 to the end of the chapter. Well, I was, I was glad for the encouraging word, but actually things didn't get better. In fact, they got worse. Well, later on, I got home. I finally got, I made it out of the country. And uh, I had gone to the Pentagon to get my orders changed. They were going to send me to Fort Hood, Texas. And they, they said, you go to Fort Knox, Kentucky. You can go there for two weeks. They'll give you a 90-day drop, and you'll get out of the Army six months early. I said, wow, that's good news. Well, I got to Fort Knox. And when I got there, they said, you have got a, uh, going to be staying here for three months. Because President Nixon, who I had cam campaigned for back in college days, had put a 90-day freeze on all drops. So they said, you're not going to go anywhere for at least 90 days. Well, as it turned out, not only did I not get uh, out six months early, it ended up ultimately with other things that came into play. I stayed there an extra year. <laughs> and again, the reason I was there for a year, God actually worked out some good things, which I didn't see prior to that. But the third period, and the longest and the hardest, was 10 years later, after I had already been in the ministry, um, my first wife did something that I never thought happened to Christians. She left me for another man while she was pregnant with my third child. And then I was absolutely devastated. I said, God, why are you bringing this into my life? And so I had gone through some really difficult times. And also I had gone through 20 years of being single, which ended when I met this lovely lady up front, Abby. And uh, we've been married almost 18 years now. So God began to shift things, but again, it was like 20 years of singlehood, 20 years separation from my kids. That came up as a result of the, the separation divorce. And I thought, okay, well, what is God doing through this? How can anything good come out of such a tragic and messed up situation? And I don't know if any of you ever thought those kind of things, but that was, it took me about two and a half years to come through that tunnel. And so, but fortunately for me, I was raised in a Christian home I accepted Christ as a young person at the age of six, and uh, during that time, I learned some Bible verses, and during Bible school, we had to memorize certain verses, and just one of the verses that I memorized happened to be Romans 8, 28, and of course, back then, all we had was the King James Bible, and I think it goes like this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So I thought, well, God is a good God. He's the, the word of God is infallible. It never makes any mistakes. 
So basically, I thought everything works out good all the time for Christians. We, and I, actually, through the first 21 years of my life, I never had any major crisis. It was like, well, things were hard working on the farm and all, but I never really felt like God had ever neglected me or rejected me until all this stuff, the Vietnam era and the marriage and all that, and I thought, okay, well, God, how is any of this going to produce any positive fruit in my life? So I'm going to read a couple other translations just to get another perspective on this verse. The NIV says, and we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love God, um, to those who have been called according to his purpose. And I like the American standard. This is kind of my favorite. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. So there's that causation, and we're going to see a lot of that in the sermon tonight. And the Amplified Bible, which of course amplifies the whole text, it says, We are assured to know that God being a partner in their labor, all things work together and are fitting into a plan for the good of those who love God and are called according to his design and purpose. So we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, because God causes all things to work together for good. It's not accidental, okay? So God is not a passive observer, but he is an active force in the whole salvation process from before the beginning of the world through the present day and even beyond the millennium into the eternal state. So it's my purpose tonight and my passion to try to explore with you how we truly know that all things work together for good to those who love God, even when things are not going well, and when the present and the future look absolutely hopeless and dismal, and God doesn't seem to be paying any attention. So maybe you've never gone through that in your life, maybe you have, or if, you, if your life has just been a smooth scale all through life, never had any bumps along the way, uh, hang on to your britches because probably one day you're gonna need this information. All right, now I want to kind of concentrate on actually getting into verse 28 of Romans. And I want to explain to begin with my primary MOS in the military, what they call it, I am a teacher, okay? Preaching is something I occasionally do. This is not my comfort zone. I love to teach. So some of the stuff I'm going to be sharing tonight is more in the teaching mode than it is the preaching mode, but bear with me because I think it's important that we understand some of the academics of God's word, but I hope it doesn't become boring because to me, the word of God is very exciting and the more we understand about how it all fits together, the, the better it is for us. Okay, so in verse 28, we're gonna see how Paul explains with great clarity and powerful logic how we can know that all things work together for good to those who love God and, and according to his purpose. Now, one of my favorite of all preachers is a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, from Great Britain. He was a pastor at, at Westminster Chapel in London, and uh, I happened to have most all of his commentaries on Romans, and when I was going through the deep valley in my life, I read almost everything Martin Lloyd-Jones ever wrote. But on just chapter 8 of Romans alone, he's, he wrote 77, or preached 77 sermons, and the book the pages of the books containing his sermons was 994 pages for one chapter, all right? And for verses 27, 28 through 30, he had 17 sermons and 209 pages. And you say, man, that'd have to get kind of redundant after a while. To say that much about those verses, I guarantee you it was a smorgasbord. I got there and I just digested what he had to say because 
Martin Lloyd-Jones is the greatest, one of the greatest expositors of all time. And uh, I just sat there and I fed and I fed and I fed because of all the great things that God has promised in that chapter. And I'd like to speak through about all that tonight, but I'd be keeping here too many hours. So I think I'm just going to try to summarize, give you the Cliff Notes version, and condense it to about an hour or less. <laughs> all right. Okay, so first of all, above everything else, we can know that all things work together for good to those who love God because God is not passive in the whole salvation process. All things work together for good because he is active, again, in that whole salvation process from the beginning of time all through history and up to the end. And it's kind of like even in the, um, the thing when he created the world, he didn't just wind up the clock take a long vacation and let the earth evolve on its own, which some people teach theistic evolution. That's kind of where they go with it. God cranked it up, put the laws in motion. He said, okay, now let evolution take its course, and that would work out. Well, that's not the way God did it. When he was working through creation, each day he worked specifically, each day, day one, day two, day three, day four, all the way through six, and at the end of the sixth day he said it was very good. So if God is in the process of salvation, you can be fairly, fairly certain that he is going to be working each and every day in the process, and when he gets to the end of the process, it's going to be very good. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it or complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. So sometimes we might start a project... And we'll get bored and tired and say, well, I think I'll just put that on the side for a while. I'll forget that and we'll try something different. But I can say this. If God started a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Christ. He's not going to quit halfway through and give up. All right? Secondly, we need to ask the question, to whom does the promise apply? Now, Romans 8.28 does not apply to everyone in the universe. I've heard many times going to funerals, uh, whether the people are Christians or not, well, they're going to be in a better place. Really? Uh, that's not exactly what this verse teaches, nor does the rest of the Bible. But the promise is to God's chosen people, those whom God has called. And it is to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So I guess what we need to ask is, what does it really mean to love God? And a lot of the guys I talked to at the jail, they say, I tried salvation, I tried God, I asked him in my life, you know, and it just didn't work out. Well, I think the problem is, is that we love God when God does good things for us. Just some examples. He gives you a job with almost no stress but a great salary. Wouldn't that be wonderful? God heals all your sicknesses and all your diseases. And if you get yourself in a real big bind, guess what? God, bail me out. I can't deal with this. You, you get me out of it. Another one is that I want God to have everybody like me because I'm such a lovable person. Or, better yet than that, we kind of like the genie in the bottle, we want three uh, wishes in life, and I only have three things. God, I want, you, I want to be help, happy, I want to be healthy, and I want to be wealthy. Well, I've been healthy most of my life, but I haven't always been happy, and I certainly haven't been wealthy. So... But that's kind of the way it is. And if God doesn't perform according to my expectations, well, then I guess God's not the, the God I think he is. All things aren't working out good, so I'm going to find myself another God and just go be an atheist. I'm not going to have God at all. But now, how does Jesus define love for God? A little bit different than sometimes our perspective. 
In Luke chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul. I got those mixed up, but that's okay. All your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, we don't necessarily like commandments, do we? The first one that I put my finger on is John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. No one has a greater love than the one who lays down his life for his friends. This, that was, is how much Jesus loved us. He went to the cross, he laid down his life for us as a sacrificial lamb so our sins could be forgiven and so God could impart his eternal life to us. So that's basically, God said, I died for you, and now I want you to live for me. In Luke 9, 13, Jesus gave a very harsh commandment. So I, I use this in almost every sermon I uh, preach on, and a couple people here probably know where I'm already going. But Jesus says to the, his disciples and the multitudes that were around, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, you've got to do three simple little things. You've got to deny yourself, which basically means... Self has got to die. It's no longer me, myself, and I. It's Christ first. He's supreme. My life is basically in his hands. Then he says, you've got to take up your cross. That doesn't mean put a cross around your neck as a piece of ornament jewelry. But he says, basically, it's a, it's a form of death. And if need be, you have to be willing to die for me. And most all the disciples, except John, had to literally become martyrs for Christ. And then he says, thirdly, I want you to follow me. I want you to walk in my steps. And again, Jesus says, I'm the great shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Jesus is the Lord and Master. He's the great shepherd. So when he speaks, we listen. And when he commands, we obey. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? All right. I like it, though, because he's a great master. And he gave his life for me. He created me. He died for me. That's reason enough for me to want to give my life back to him in exchange. Finally, in Matthew 28, he gives the Great Commission. And he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you even to the very end of the age. So those are kind of the things that Jesus says, If you want to, if you want to follow me, those are the things I demand from you. Well, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 gave his testimony, and basically he followed right along what Jesus taught. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, ego, that lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this fleshly body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How much did Paul love Jesus? enough to be beaten with 39 stripes five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned, left for dead at Lystra. He had shipwrecks. He hungered often. He fasted often. He was naked. He was cold. He did all these things. Then he says, plus all the cares for all the churches. And did you ever hear Paul get on a pity party and say, oh, Lord, why me, why me? How come you're bringing all this disaster to me? When he wrote to the Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And where was Paul at when he wrote that? In the Roman prison. 
He wasn't in the Riviera in France enjoying himself in the sun. He was going through some hard things. But you know, Paul could not shut up. He'd get persecuted in one city. They stoned him in Lystra. The next thing, he's going off to the next town. Philippi, they put him in jail. The next thing, he's going to Berea. They gave him trouble in Berea, and he goes to Thessalonica. It's like it just keeps on going, okay? He never stops. The Energizer Bunny, all right? So again, the first requirement then, if we want all things to work together for good, is that we need to love God. If we don't love God, everything's off, okay? It doesn't work. All right, now there's a second requirement, and that is we need to be called according to his purpose, not our purpose. Okay, God has a divine plan and purpose when he calls his people to be his followers or disciples. Um, And not just to hand out, get out of jail free cards. That's sometimes, I think, what people want. I just want to get out of hell, okay? Modern evangelism has placed far too much emphasis upon cheap grace. Come to Jesus and get. Get forgiveness of sins, healing for all your diseases, fix all your problems, plus you get eternal life as a bonus. Now, that's a pretty good deal, right? All you need to do, basically, is repeat these words after me. God, forgive me of my sins, help me with all my problems, and give me eternal life so I don't have to go to hell but go to heaven when I die. That should just about save half the world right there, shouldn't it? So the problem is the focus is too much on the benefits and not too much on the cost. But you know, someone made a statement a long time ago I heard. He says, God's primary purpose in saving us is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. God wants us set apart from the world, sin, the devil, and he wants us set apart to worship and to praise and serve him. Okay, so what is God's purpose for saving us? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's where we want to just camp out right there. That's what I want. I want to have salvation by grace, grace, grace. And it's not of works. Hey, I don't have to do a thing. I can just rest on my laurels, take it easy, no sweat. But verse 10 says, But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God ordained that we should walk in them. So there are good works. And what does James say? Faith without works is dead. All right, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Again, after all, Paul goes through all the doctrinal stuff, he finally comes to the application, which we're not going to go to chapter 12 too far. But verse 1 and 2, he says, I urge you, brethren, or I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And then he says, And be not conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is the good, the acceptable, and perfect will of God. So Christ's purpose in coming to earth was to be a dying sacrifice so our sins could be forgiven and we could be clothed with the righteousness of God. Now, he in turn wants us to reciprocate that love by being living sacrifices to him. And again, it's no longer serving ourselves, all the things that we want out of life, but it's serving our Lord and Savior. In 2 Corinthians 3, 8, well, I'll get to there. That's going to be later. I'm going to hold that for a second. Okay, another verse that Paul talks about as far as his ultimate purpose for us is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 4. 
He says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through entirely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. So how many people here tonight could say honestly that you've been sanctified entirely through and through? <laughs> um, I'm still working on that. I, th- I told some friends a while back, I said, if I could live as old as Methuselah, I could be 969 years old, I might get this much closer. <laughs> yeah. But that's God's ultimate expectation. And oftentimes we sell ourselves very short. We say, well, God doesn't expect anybody to be perfect. Well, it sounds to me like that's kind of what his expectations are. And uh, he wants us to be basically sanctified entirely because when we come into heaven, there's no sin, right? So we got to be sin-free by the time we get raptured into heaven. Of course, a lot of that's going to happen when we get our glorified bodies. All right, so if we meet these two basic requirements, here they are. You are to love God, and you're called according to his purpose. Then you can claim the promise that all things will work together for good to those that love God, to those called according to his purpose. But if you don't love God supremely, and you're not called according to his purpose then you need to check your heart and say, God, I don't think I'm quite there yet, but I certainly want to dedicate my life entirely to your purposes and to your kingdom. All right, so what do we know, or how do we know that all things work together for good? Well, first of all, I want to make clear that not all things that happen to Christians are good. If you've lost your job, you've gone through a horrible divorce, your health has fallen apart, those are not good things that happen to Christians, are they? But the promise is that all things work together for good. One of my little nursery rhymes that I used to quote a lot is the Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but God can. So if in your past life you've got a lot of broken pieces, there's just a lot of stuff that was messed up, you broke a lot of stuff, God can take all that mess and make something beautiful out of it. Just like Paul's life, he persecuted the church, but then later on he says, but the grace of God abounded in me more than all the other apostles, and if, if we become vessels that God can fill, God can use us immensely. And so I, I praise God that he uses even me, a poor farm boy from Michigan, picked berries with a kid, and... Uh, Speech class was the worst class I ever had in school. I hated it in high school. I hated it in college. I hated homiletics and seminary. And I don't necessarily enjoy getting up here tonight, but every time I do it, it's like God gives me grace. And I thank him for it. I thank for the prayers of you guys tonight because in my own flesh, I just don't ever want to get up here. I would much rather sit here and listen to everybody else preach. That's just the way I am. All right. So, what's an example of God working things together for good? Well, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is a man named Joseph. The reason I related to him, because he, he had a bunch of older brothers, and I had a couple older brothers that picked on me. And one summer I was reading through Genesis, and I came across Joseph, and I said, Man, I thank you, Lord, that you like the younger brothers. <laughs> Have mercy on me. Well, Joseph was 17 years old. His brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. Well, he was faithful to God. He was faithful in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the head of Pharaoh's guard, and he promoted him to the head steward of all his possessions. He took care of everything. Well, one day, Potiphar's wife 
tried to put the uh, hit on him and, and accused him of rape. And so when Potiphar comes home, his wife says, oh, look what this young Hebrew slave did. He tried to rape me. And I don't know whether Potiphar 100% believed his wife or not, but he had, him, had, him, had Joseph thrown into Pharaoh's dungeon in his prison, and he was there for several more years. And from the age of 17 to the age of 30, Joseph's sitting there, God, what are you doing to me? None of this makes any sense. I've been faithful to you, and what's my reward? I get thrown in this dungeon. Well, as the story goes on, there's a famine in Egypt, and, fair, and Joseph gets promoted to the prime minister of the country. He, he's way up there. He's got all these silos. He's feeding Egypt. He's feeding all the nations around them. And one day his brothers show up in Egypt. And Joseph has a lot of fun with them. And uh, I'm not going to go through that whole story. But ultimately, Jacob and all the family, all his brothers come there, and they go in the land of Goshen, and he feeds them. But then Jacob dies, and all of a sudden the brothers get worried. Oh, dad's gone now. I bet Joseph's going to get his revenge. He's going to put us through the loops now because of what we did to him. And so they said, Joseph, please forgive us, forgive us. We're so sorry for what we did. We'll even become your servants or slaves if you just let us live. Well, I love Joseph's answer. He said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to you. Uh, or basically he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So I have been able to save many lives, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And be assured, he assured them and spoke kindly to them. So because God, Joseph loved God and was faithful, and he did everything according to God's purpose, everything worked out together for good at the end. So he saved his family, he saved Egypt, he saved the surrounding nations, but he also had a big part in Israel's future history, the fact that they would go back to the promised land, and all of that promoted the kingdom of God. So sometimes we look at the immediate picture and we say, God, there's nothing, there's no daylight here, there's no hope here. God says, just hang on, you haven't got to the last chapter of the book. And that's one of the things I always thought about when I was going through hard times. Like, I love to read books, and I never want to stop till I get to the last chapter. So if you're ever going through a bad time in your life, don't hang it up and say, oh man, I want to just boom, be done with it. Because guess what, there's more chapters in the book, and I like to stick around to the end to see what God's ultimate purpose is. All right, so when we go through times of trial or stress, do we become consumed with the trial and question God's love and his purpose for our lives, or do we draw nearer to God and trust him to work out all these things for our greater good and for his greater purpose? So we have two choices to make. Whenever things happen, we can either get better or we can get bitter. And in my life, I decided I'm going to get better because who wants to be around an old bitter sourpuss anyway? You know, it's like, uh, if you got problems, I got bigger problems. I don't want to hear your stories. Best thing is just put a smile on and say God is good all the time. And even if it isn't, God's good even if the situation isn't. So praise the Lord. All right, so how can we know that God causes all things to work together for good? So now I have to shift gears. And we're going to look at verses 29 and 30. We're going to get into a little bit of academics. So please be patient with me. I hope it's profitable to you. All right. In these two verses, we see God's eternal plan worked out in the lives of his saints, those who've been called according to his purpose. In these verses, we see the five steps or stages in God's sovereign working in the lives of his chosen people. They're like five links in a chain which God has welded together. If any one of the links fails, then the whole chain falls apart. 
But because God is the engineer who puts the links together, we can be absolutely certain that they will never fall apart because it's held together by the united power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at the five links together. All right, just remember that, Charlie. God is the engineer, and he doesn't make any mistakes. All right, first of all, in verse 29, it says, God foreknew us. And the definition of that means to know beforehand, to, be, uh, to determine beforehand, to foreordain, to appoint as subjects to future privileges. Now, this word can have a dual meaning. Primarily, a lot of people think, well, it means to know the future, and God certainly does know the future. And so they look at this whole foreordination or foreknowledge is that God looks down through the corridors of history. He's looking down through time, and he says, Charlie, he's a good man. He's got a good character. He's honest. He's hardworking. He provides for his family. He loves his wife and children. He's going to make a good follower of me, so I'm choosing him. He, I'm, I, he, I'm foreordaining him. I, he's the man. I'm, I'm calling him. Okay? That's one way to look at it. Okay? But there's also another side of for, foreknowledge, and that is that God causes a relation. He's not just seeing something. He's actively involved in the process. Okay? One verse is Romans 11:2. It says, No, God has not rejected or disowned his people whose destiny he has marked out and appointed and foreknown from the beginning. Okay, there's a causation. God causes things to happen. 1 Peter 1.20, Peter used the same words that relates to Christ, for he was foreknown or foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. Okay, so Christ was foreordained to come into the world as a man even before the foundation of the world. So, Foreknowledge, God knew that was going to happen, but you know what? He also was, he's the one that caused it to happen. Okay? He foreordained it. So also the, uh, the Greek word for gnosko, which is the word that's often used of know, means to have an experience with, intimacy with. Okay? So in, Adam, in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife, she conceived, and had a son named Cain. Now that wasn't just academic knowledge. And I used to ask my dad about that, the King James, so-and-so knew his wife. Well, okay, weren't they married? She, he just now found out who she was? So there's a lot of intimacy, and that's kind of the way it is with God. When God chooses someone, he foreknows them because he has caused a relationship to already be happening. In Exodus 33:17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I have known you by name. Okay, there was an intimacy he called him at the, the burning bush, but he also called him even when they put him in the, the, uh, the, the bulrushes in that little basket and when Pharaoh's daughter picked him up. So that was part of God's ultimate plan. All right, one I like the best is Jeremiah chapter 1, 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. All right? Even before he was formed in the womb, God says, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. That's God's causative, active work in the life of Jeremiah. All right, so the next link in the chain is predestination. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. All right, the definition of predestination is to limit or mark out beforehand, to designate or design, uh, definitely beforehand, to ordain beforehand, 
It says that God has marked out or mapped out a particular destiny for his people. All right, example of that is Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And I like the NLT's translation, everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Okay, so here's the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, all these people plotted the death of Jesus, the multitude said crucify him, Pilate says you, you take care of it. That's what man does, but God had predetermined the crucifixion of Christ, again, probably before the foundation of the world. Okay? All back in the Psalms, Isaiah 53, all these things prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before that it was going to happen just the way it happened, so God predetermined it. All right, Ephesians 1.11, dealing more specifically with us, In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Again, the NLT says, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God has a plan in all that he does. It's not accidental. And fortunately, it's not all left up to us. Because you know what? If our salvation was totally left up to us, how many of us would blow it every day? All right? So predestination, here's the definition, is simply a description of the destiny that God has determined and decided upon for the people whom he has foreknown. I'm going to read that again just because it's a lot there. Predestination is simply a description of the destiny that God has determined and decided upon for the people whom he has foreknown. Okay? And so for what purpose did God foreknow us and predestinate us? All right? And again, it says in the end of verse 29, to be conformed to the image or likeness of his son. We are to become the representation or reflection of his image to, of Jesus Christ to a watching world. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And the NLT says, So all of us who have had that veil of spiritual darkness removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Uh, Galatians 4.19, this is kind of like Paul's prayer for the Galatians. He says, oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains again for you, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your life. That's quite, that's quite a deep, profound thought, isn't it? Okay? So God wants us to be the reflection of Christ to the watching world. How close do we are to reflecting his image? Okay, God didn't just want to save us to get us out of hell. That's, that's what a lot of people think. I just want that, like, I want that uh, get out of jail free card, you know. But God has a plan, and that is that we reflect God's glory to the world watching us. All right? Jesus prayed pretty much the same thing in the upper room before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, I do not pray for these alone. This is John 17, 20 through 23. I do not pray for these alone, the 11 apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word or message that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
So again, that was God's prayer, that we would be one in him even as he is with the Father. Now, I don't, that is way up here. How can we be one with Christ in the same intimacy, the same likeness that he's with the Father? But that's what Jesus prayed. All right? So, that's God's ultimate intention as his adopted sons and daughters, for whom he foreknew and predestined before the foundation of the world, just so we, not just so that we could have our sins forgiven and get a free ride to heaven, but he had a much greater and more profound plan, and that was that we, his beloved children, would reflect the light and life of Christ to a dark and sin-cursed world. That is what God planned for you and me long before we were born or even conceived in our mother's womb. God has an eternal plan for our lives. So now we're going to move from the past to the present and the future in verse 30. And the first two links were foreknowledge and predestination. The next three are calling, justification, and glorification. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And at this point, I'm just going to throw one little piece of Greek grammar in here. Just bear with me. Don't get shook up. He says, okay, all these things happen. It's aorist, active, indicative, third person singular. Now, I know that means a lot to you, but it means a lot. It doesn't mean much to you. It means a lot to me. The aorist tense, basically, it's a point of action that happened in the past, okay? But now when God talks, okay, you understand about foreknowledge, predestination, calling, that's past, okay? But what about, and even justification, but what about glorification? That hadn't happened yet. In God's mind, that is already, in his mind, that's past tense. It already happened. And why is it? Because it's also in the indicative mood, which is the mood of certainty. God is the one doing the action, He's the, and we are the subject to the action. So all of this stuff, God's, in God's mind and purpose, all these events have already taken place as an established fact in the past tense. In his mind, they cannot be changed or altered. You say, well, why is that? Well, one, number one, he's omniscient. He knows all things. Number two, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And thirdly, he's the one that's doing all the action. It's, he's, he's the one bringing all this together. So we're going to quickly look at the third chain, and that is those who he called. That means to call, invite, or to summon. And so once God has foreknown us and predestined us, then he calls us, he invites us, just like he called Peter, James, John, and the other disciples. And uh, in 1 Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special peace people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I like first Timothy or second Timothy 1 9 it says God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Okay again God called us it's a holy calling not according to works but it's before time began. And then 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1.3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous grace and glory. And then Romans 10.13 says, for whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you know, even before we called, God had already foreknown us, he predestined us, and he called us. And then we hear the message come to Jesus. We say, Lord, I'm ready. I'm desperate. I need you to come and save me from my sins. I want you to come into my life. Change me. I surrender my will totally to your will. And God says, okay, if you die to yourself, take up your cross, follow me, then I'm going to justify you. I'm going to declare you righteous just as if you had never, ever sinned. 
That's pretty important. Also, he imputes his righteousness to us. He doesn't just acquit us. He gives us total justification. He takes away all the debt, and he removes it. He moves our sins as far as the deepest sea, and so he declares us righteous in Christ. Again, it's not of works. Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, this is one that uh, kind of nails it all. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved in his life. For when we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we'd be saved by his life. All right. In Romans 6, 8, 33, Paul poses this question. Who then can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If God declares us righteous and he's all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, and since it was his idea before the foundation of the world, then who in the world can possibly bring a charge against us if we are indeed among those whom God has elected to salvation? Doesn't make sense, does it? So we finally come to the last link in the chain. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want to tell you again, that's past tense, in God's mind. It's future, we're still down here in our mortal bodies, but ultimately we're going to be in glory. So what does that mean? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love his definition. He says, glorification means full and entire deliverance from sin and evil in all their effects and in every respect, body, soul, and spirit. The whole man will be completely and entirely delivered from every harmful effect of sin, every tarnishing, polluting effect of sin. Not only so, we shall become like the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect men, glorified men. He is already glorified, and we shall be glorified. And our glorification, like everything else that happens to us in the Christian life, is a result of our being joined to him. One of Paul's favorite phrases, and I, I spent a lot of time in my thesis, in, uh, in Christ Jesus, that's a, that's a profound thought. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are in perfect position because Christ is in God and we actually have the whole trinity. He says, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm going to send the comforter who will live and abide with you forever. All right, just the example of the, of the rapture and our glorified, glorified bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 53, Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal with immortality. And so when Paul understood all that, he says, you know what? There's really good news. He says, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, no more sickness, no more beatings, no more sorrow, no more death, no crying, no more pain. It's all done because God is God. It already has an immortal body waiting for us. All right. So he also has another scripture. I'm going to wrap this up pretty soon here. 
Ephesians number 2, verses 4 and 7, he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, or transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying basically, again, aorist tense, it's already in my, God's mind, we are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Our citizenship currently is in heaven. Guess what? We're just on, we're on loan from God. We're, we're on vacation. We're ambassadors for Christ here on earth. This is not our home. We're pilgrims passing through. Our, our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, okay? And so God says, I've already got this in my mind. This is already an established fact. So, just how secure are we in Christ Jesus? That's the question. How, how secure is this? Can I lose it once I've got it? A lot of people are worried about that. And maybe some people should be, because if they don't have the real thing, they should be extremely worried. Jesus says in John 10, 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never, ever, ever perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Why is that? He says, because my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father are one. Okay, here I am. God says, I'm going to wrap, Jesus says, I'm going to wrap my arms around you. You are secure. And the Father says, now wait a minute, I'm going to wrap my, my arms around you and Christ. So I'm, I, I got Christ's arms around me, I've got the Father's arms around me. And beyond all that, I also have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. That's pretty secure, isn't it? No, who's greater in the universe than God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? There's no one. All right? And then 1 John 5, 11 through 13, he says, The witness is this, that God has given to us eternal life. How long is eternal? That's a long time. And then no end, right? Some people think that God gives us salvation. He, he, he made the, great, the down payment on the cross, but we've got to make the monthly payment, payments. Kind of like life insurance. You don't make the last payment, it's no good. All right? Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. It's a completed transaction. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may hope that you have eternal life. Is that right? That you may know, absolutely know that you have eternal life. And I'm on the last page. Thank God. All right, it doesn't get any better than that. The Father is the one who is the architect of salvation. He's the one that wrote up the plan, okay? Jesus Christ is the builder. He's the one that went to the cross. He died for us. He shed his blood so that we might have eternal life. And the Holy Spirit's been given to us to indwell within us and give us the power to live the Christ, the, the Christian life. He is the seal of God's ownership upon our lives. He's a guarantee of that which is yet to come. He is the down payment on, on our, our inheritance. That's in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Now, one last passage in Romans 8, 14 through 17. And if you've got your Bible, you can look at that. But it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may share in his glory. So if we have denied ourselves, 
if we've taken up our cross and we're following Jesus, then all of this comes into play, okay? So, what is our salvation insurance policy? Now, if you've got car insurance, you're going to be in good hands with Allstate, okay? But if we are in the hands of God the Father and Christ our Son, and we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then we are very secure in, in Christ. We are indwelt with the Spirit. And he lives and abides with us forever. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And the Holy Spirit's come to live and abide with us forever. So what on, heaven and on earth or in heaven can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Well, I don't have time to go through all the verses 21 to 39. So what we're going to do tonight, we're just going to read it together. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read it. I think this pretty much speaks for itself. Paul raises four questions, and basically he answers them as he goes through this. So starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Basically, no one. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, the devil might. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemn, who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And he's going to got a long catalog of stuff. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And that's exactly what Paul felt like in his life. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded and convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, or anything else that I could think of, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." And based on all that, I think we ought to say amen, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> all right, now, if you understood everything I said tonight, then you should know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So if you love God tonight, go home and thank God for his great grace, for his abundant love, for his, all, all, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, all the great things of God, because there's security in him. And, there's, and God is love. That's the great thing. It's not, we don't serve God just because of his power and his greatness. It's the fact that he died on the cross to save us from our sins. And uh, we're all wretched sinners apart from God. I thank you for his love. I thank, you, thank God for all the things that he's brought around in my life, even the nonsense, the bad stuff that happened years ago. And God can even use me dealing with guys in a prison who have no, not, I can't relate to them on their level, but God's love reaches out, good things are happening. I just thank God for who he is and what he's doing. So let's praise the Lord.